0: You ever dreamt of being the one that win? you know, he kind of hits the, the home run, you know, key clutch moment in the baseball game, you know, or, or scores the goal, you know, with seven seconds remaining to tie it up in order that, you know, it goes into overtime and go flames go. Um, we, 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 I'm waiting for, I'm waiting for the, the movie to be produced that tells the story of Joseph's life. Um, it's a nail biter. Like, it is an invitation into heroic uh, collaboration with God. Um, Now, to to be sure uh, that we've got this right, uh, there is really only one hero in the pages of Scripture. Like, as we read through the narratives, and we read, Joseph was referenced earlier, and there's really, as we read through the narratives of the Old Testament, the New Testament, there's one hero, and that is God. He is the, the actor, he is the mover, he is the one who is, um, is, is at work and, and th- to whom we rightly bring our worship and we rightly bring our praise. And then he invites you and I to make some heroic decisions and join him in a work that he's doing. And that's the story that we have uh, with, with Joseph here, making some heroic choices, doesn't understand the, the implications of what that's going to mean, uh, but he's willing to give God his yes. So let's read it together, Matthew chapter 2, we're just going to read the first 12 verses. I'll obviously stand one more time, get exercise, keep you awake. Um, and we're honoring the fact that we're attending to God's word when we do this. We're, we're, we're honoring that this is more than just words on a page. I'm in the New International Version, uh, reading from chapter two, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And this is the word of the Lord. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed on coming to the house. They saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the word of the Lord. May he help us understand it this morning. Apply it. You may be seated. New Testament scholar Rodney Reeves writes concerning this story. So last week we started looking at Joseph. He's going to divorce Mary quietly. He's going to kind of do the noble thing, the right thing, the legal thing, and encounters God and decides that another route is being directed to him. Um, here, here, here's what Reeves describes in sort of the broader story than what we just read here. Um, he says, "This is the Christmas story, question mark. Um, Matthew's version of our favorite holiday is hardly recognizable except for the star and the wise man. Joseph, nearly divorcing Mary, Herod's diabolical ploy, "The slaughter of the innocents." We're going to read about that next week. "The flight to Egypt, waiting for a wicked king to die." None of these things make the cover of the Christmas cards, right? This is not the story that that, that we like to celebrate at this time of the year. When Matthew said, yes, I will do what the angel told me to do, and we looked at that last summer, effectively, Joseph was jumping into a tank full of sharks, Like he's jumping into an extraordinary story and he really only kind of has a a little glimpse of what that is all about. There's a whole backstory to what we just read that if we just read the Hallmark Cards and we just sort of sing the carols, we miss the backstory of what's truly going on in the life of Joseph and what it is that he stepped into. There's a historic backstory, there's a cosmic backstory... And then there's a personal story that you and I are also invited to attend to. So so the historic backstory, let's just review it for a minute here. Um, Herod was an Edomite. Um, uh, That is, he was a descendant of Esau, and you may recall that Esau uh, was the brother of Jacob, son of Isaac. Okay, so if you know anything at all about that story, you know that, there, that there's, that's the dirty laundry in the, the laundry hamper of the nation of Israel. Like, that's the, that's the skeletons in the closet kind of stuff, which, of course, they bring out. So a, I mean, a couple weeks ago, we looked at the family tree of Jesus. Matthew's telling of the family tree starts with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Well, Jacob had a slightly, uh, was the slightly younger uh, of fraternal twins, Jacob and Esau. Um, he was born to Isaac, born to Rebekah, and Jacob's, ne- Jacob's name literally means trickster, and, and he was that. Um, he and his mom, Rebekah, she was no better. They conspired to trick uh, her husband, his father, into granting a favored position to, uh, to Jacob over his son to give the birthright, Um, that favored place in the family, uh, to pronounce a divine blessing on the younger son rather than the older son, which was the tradition, was the way it was expected to happen. Um, When the older son found out, when Esau found out, he was furious. And uh, eventually Jacob fled for his life um, because his his brother was going to kill him as soon as dad was gone. In the midst of all of that, there was this prophetic declaration that the older would serve the younger. Genesis 25, verse 23. Now, jettison forward 1,500 to 1,800 years, okay, from that story, and you've got an Edomite, a son of Esau, on the throne of Jacob's family in Jerusalem, uh, the, the, lording over the Israelites. Um, This is sweet revenge for the the nation of Edom. Uh, These people had been under the thumb of Israel that entire historic period. Now Edomite was king over Israel. The older was over the younger. Now it may have looked like Herod was king on the throne, but Rome was really the power behind um, this Edomite king. Herod's officials gathered the taxes um, Everyone knew most of the money that was gathered went to Rome, went to Caesar. Herod made the show, Caesar got the dough, uh, so to say. In the minds of his subjects, Herod was nothing more than just a puppet king. Rome was pulling all of the strings. But even more than that, Herod had acquired the throne through power politics. Um, He was was a shrewd maneuverer. Um, His father was a friend of Caesar and called in some favors, um, Herod used his own cutthroat tactics uh, to remove every possible rival. He, he was a ruthless tyrant, uh, blood on his hands everywhere, including including killing his wife and two of his sons that, in his paranoia, he thought were a threat to his throne. He would do anything to hold his power. So, so when News comes that a king of Israel has been born. You can believe that when it says Herod was uh, what is uh, what's the exact words was upset, and all of Jerusalem with him um, disturbed. Herod was disturbed. That, that, that's a beautiful double entendre <laughs> um, to describe him. And all of Jerusalem was disturbed with him because this was political volatility and. and Joseph was stepping into this shark tank. He was stepping into the shark tank, not just with Caesar, not just with Herod, but the religious leaders of the day in attempting to try to guide the people uh, through centuries of deep, deep distress. Like this is a nation, if you had had the time to read through what's called the interim period, the intertestamental period from the end of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New Testament, man, it's hell in a basket for the, the, the children of Israel, for the nation of Israel. Just difficulty after difficulty. Uh, the, the Greeks come, uh, Alexander the Great, and clobber them, and these series of Seleucid kings, and then the Romans come, and it is just crisis after crisis after crisis. So, so the Jewish leaders make a deal with Herod. Now, what they end up doing in order to try to make nice is they've made a deal with the devil, and they are unable to then discern what God is really doing when. The Messiah comes. They were putting their trust in the politicians and the politics of their day rather than putting their trust in the God who moves the hearts of the politicians in order to accomplish his purposes. So when the Magi show up, all of Jerusalem is rightly disturbed. This madman, this, this unstable, violent dictator will do anything to keep his grip on, the, on power. And so the suggestion of a rival king being born is bad news for everyone, despite what the angels might have told the shepherds on the hillside. Joseph is swimming with sharks here. He's a, Joseph, he's a peasant carpenter. What does he know about power politics? Okay, right? He's, he's got a teenage wife. And he's got a brand new baby in arms. They're learning to be parents. Like this, is, this is, would be a crisis for any one of our families. What does he know about the madman machinations of a truly paranoid lunatic like King Herod? But this is the high adventure drama that Matthew's introducing us to. We miss it if we just look at the Christmas cards and just sing the carols. There's an extraordinary backstory going on here. Joseph and Mary have are, are already been described in the text as being this simple, righteous, God-fearing, covenant-keeping couple against Caesar, against Herod, against the religious establishment of Jerusalem. This is all the makings of an epic drama. That's kind of the historic background to that drama, but there's also a cosmic background that's going on here too. There's a spiritual battle that is in play. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us much about it, and if you were there in the situation at the time, you you wouldn't perhaps See much of it or be fully aware of what was going on, but we get the bet- benefit of retrospect, right? We can read the whole of Scripture and read into it. Uh, John tells us that, that in this full disclosure, there's a whole backstory going on in the cosmic realm, not just in the historic realm. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, uh, uh, tells us, reads the following. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Now, let me just pause for a minute. John knows, and and I know you know, but let me just remind you of this that we are not alone in our world. That while we exist in a physical realm, there is a spiritual realm that is about us. God is spirit. Uh, He is at work in uh, our world via his spirit. He has an angelic realm, an angelic host uh, who are doing his bidding, his messengers who are at work in our world as well. And there is an adversary, a fallen angel, a powerful angel, the devil, who has a group of angels that we refer to as demons now, fallen angels who went with him, who are at work against God's purposes in our world. No comparison between God God and the devil. Not my arms aren't big enough, okay? So don't don't be confused about that but this is the spiritual reality uh, that we're talking about and John here is pulling back the curtain for us so that we can see what's going on and you're going to see that that you know we we've got four gospels there's a sense in which revelation is the fifth gospel this is another telling of the of the of the christmas story here uh, Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant. There's all kinds of symbolism here. We won't get into the details of this. 12 stars referring to Israel. Uh, The woman is a sign. Signs point to something. Okay? Just point that out. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign, here's another sign, appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Those are power symbols that we're supposed to recognize. This is a, a ferocious, powerful beast. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. Probably a reference to uh, the dragon, Satan, uh, drawing to himself a third of the angelic host who become fallen angels. That seems to be how we're supposed to read this. Uh, this imagery from John. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. What a gross image. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule over the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation, and the power, and the kingdom of our God, and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. Yay! They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Now we get into all kinds of trouble and many scholars have done so trying to overanalyze the imagery that goes on here in the book of Revelation. But we, if we take a step back from the detail we see a, a, a profound picture that seems to bring together History past, history present, and history future kind of molds it together. But we can't, but we catch this much that there are signs. There are two signs there. The woman is pointing to Israel, Mary, the church. The other sign, the dragon pointing to the evil realm, this battle that's taking place in the heavenlies around us. And then this child, who is not a sign. Uh, it's significant that, that John differentiates that because the signs point to something. He's the something. He is the, he is the it. This is Christ who is there. So we know from Matthew that Joseph's been charged to shelter his wife. He doesn't show up in this revelation kind of narrative, but it that God whisked the mother and his child away. So, so Joseph has a hand in this. This is part of the drama where he stepped in. So in the natural realm, he's dealing with Caesar and Herod and the religious leaders. But in the spiritual realm, there's this battle going on in the heavenlies. And there's something far beyond that which meets the eye that is, that is taking place in this account. And Joseph, this carpenter with his teenaged wife and his brand new baby. They're in the middle of this whole thing. And you got got those who, who report to have power in this world, pitted against those who all of us would say are powerless. And yet, and yet, God is at work doing an extraordinary thing that we never would have guessed if we only looked at the surface of the matter. So into the shark tank... From these star-gazing astrologers. <laughs> this is a part of the story that has always messed with my head. Like, these guys are probably Zoroastrians, um, worshippers of the stars. Now, monotheists, one god, but, but worshipping sort of the heavenlies or looking for guidance from this god figure that they would, uh, would you know, believe in. Um, what are they doing in this story? Like, how did this come to be? Um, Scholar Rodney Reeves puts a point to it like this. Without knowing it, these outsiders blur the lines of righteousness according to the law. Now, this is something Matthew is going to come back to multiple times. Um, How do we understand the Old Testament law? How is it that we are supposed to live in light of of what God says in black and white? Uh, We talked about it already, right, in the Sermon on the Mount, Uh, where the the, the matters of the heart are substantial. Uh, What we do matters. What we're thinking, what we're believing matters. Uh, It's not just the doing. Without knowing it, these outsiders blurred the lines of righteousness according to the law. Consider how wrong these foreigners are. Number one, they don't belong to God's elect. Number two, they act like they know what the God of Israel is up to simply because they can read the stars. Number three, they show up at the wrong place looking for the Messiah, awakening the jealous rage of a crazed ruler. Number four, they give away away their treasures to a complete stranger without confirming his identity, perhaps putting the little family at risk since gold attracts thieves. Number five, they went straight home because of a dream and never returned to check on their investment. Even in the best light of a star no less, these so-called wise guys come off looking like simpletons, fools. Yet in in their rather naive and simple way, the magi end up contrasting what right behavior looks like. In the company of a king and his entourage who should have known better, while the insiders are fumbling through the sacred wisdom of God's word trying to understand it. The outsiders end up finding the Messiah because they follow a star. Matthew wants to make this plain. The Magi didn't go to Bethlehem because of what the prophet Micah predicted looking for the ruler who will shepherd Israel. They headed for the city of David's birth only because the star reappeared to show them the way. Like children easily distracted to bright lights, they were overjoyed with exceeding great joy when the star led them directly to the house. Once they arrived, they bowed down and worshipped him, presented their gifts, and left, not knowing any better. The Magi did the right thing. They offered proper acts of obeisance to the king of the Jews, something Herod must have expected for himself. Have you ever wondered what came next? What did the Magi do with this? They stood with a personal responsibility and accountability before God. They had experienced dreams. They would experienced divine revelation. God had shown them in the heavenlies. We don't understand what that is, but God had shown them that something profound was taking place. They came. There's a sense in which the Magi did with what they had, what they were supposed to do. So based on whatever knowledge that they did have, they stood accountable before God to respond to him. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. He says, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. So we refer to this theologically as general revelation. There is a general revelation of God in our world and the beauty of the created realm in the beauty of the relationships that we share with one another as we look at the stars, as we look at the mountains, as we look at the ocean. It all beckons us back to pay attention. There is a God. You are responsible to ask questions about him, to begin inquiring, to come seeking him. But the general revelation was not enough to get them to the Christ child. It got them close. It got them to Jerusalem. It was a reasonable assumption for them to make based on what they knew. But once they got there, they needed the scriptures to get them to Jesus. Scriptures told them rightly Bethlehem is a place. God divinely guided them however that worked to the Christ child. And then I wonder what they did with that. What do you do after you have experienced God's miraculous direction? Signs in the heavens, divine visitations in dreams. I mean, it's got to impact the person's life, right? It's got to change you somehow once you have encountered God. What are you doing? What are you doing? with that which you have encountered of God. I mean, after all, we're talking about a supernatural being who created all things, and according to the scriptures, has been in loving pursuit of you. But this account with Joseph highlights that there are two kingdoms at work here. Herod and the Jewish the religious leaders in Jerusalem, they allied themselves with the kingdoms of this world. Mary and Joseph chose to be faithful, covenant-keeping followers of Yahweh. God's the real hero in Matthew's gospel, but he invites simple people like Mary and Joseph to do heroic things in giving their yes to God, in stepping in with him saying, I don't know how this is going to work out. I don't know where this is going, but I am going to say yes to him. I'm reminded of the disciple who then said, who else but you has the words of life. Where else do I go? Now that I know what I know. And it invites us to ask the question, what will we do? I say this in the midst of the Christmas season, third Sunday of Advent, in part because if you're making the decision of what will I do when the pressure is on, when the, when the carpet's been pulled out from under you, when circumstances do not make sense, no matter how you try to rationalize them away, you will be in a very vulnerable place to fall flat on your face and blow it. The time to resolve your yes for God is in the midst of the Christmas season when things maybe are going a little better. I don't know. I don't know what it's like like in your home. But the the time to say yes to God, to to strengthen your resolve, is always going to be now. And when it's in the midst of, of easy times, we take the We take the privilege of being able to invest and read and study and grow and strengthen and and, and flex our our witness muscles, uh, engage with those around us that we would be sharing our faith, sharing the hope that we have in Jesus, so that the yes is well established when it all hits the fan, when the difficulties come. Some of you have been feeling like you're swimming in a tank full of sharks, too. And honestly, all of us ought to. I mean, this is a big, bad world. The evidence of the brokenness of the world is all around, and it's been amply illustrated for us this morning as we've welcomed the Samaras, as we've heard from Michelle. The the temptation as we face the, the obstacles in our world is to adopt adopt the systems of the world, to adopt worldly thinking, to adopt the schemes and the manipulations of the kingdom of this world. Do what's necessary to get ahead, or do what's necessary just to survive, whether whether it's the right thing to do or not. That's what the religious leaders in Jerusalem had chosen to do, And as a result, they missed the Messiah and found themselves fighting against God constantly. Rather, Matthew is inviting us to embrace the kingdom of our God. And all that's going on, the historical backstory, the cosmic backstory, the personal story, would be our yes with God stepping into his work. Through through the ordinary covenant-keeping, faithful exercising of our faith, walking with Jesus in obedience when things are easy and when not so much. Early in Jesus' ministry, he would gather his disciples around him. Crowds were there too. They were watching on. And we've already looked at this in the Sermon on the Mount. And he would begin to teach them how upside down this world really is. And he would invite them to be children who would live in his blessing, the Beatitudes. You're blessed when? And then smack dab in the center of the Sermon on the Mount, he would teach his followers to pray. So I want to invite you to stand with me. The worship team is going to come and get me ready. But I want to invite you to pray the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer with me. So that we don't miss the richness, some of the depth of this, we're going to pray this Disciples' Prayer or the Lord's Prayer a line at a time. I'm going to have you speak out loud the line and then pause. And I'm going to fill in some blanks and just attempt to model for you the way you can pray this prayer at home every day as the Lord would would grant us opportunities to visit with him. So let's us pray together. Lord, we pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Lord God, we long that you would be seen as hallowed, you would be seen as holy. Oh God, we long that we, your people, would live in such a manner that the holiness of you would be seen and be evident in us. Lord, we pray. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom, Lord. Not Rome or Babylon or Great Britain or the United States of America or the Dominion of Canada. Your kingdom. We are citizens of your kingdom, Lord. And we invite you to come and rule and reign in us and through us. We ask that you'd help us be attentive to your will rather than our own will or Herod's will or anyone else's will who would attempt to foister their agenda on us. Your will. Grow our desire for you, Lord Jesus. And may our influence result In this place, looking more and more like heaven. Lord, we pray. Give us this day our daily bread. Everything we need to fulfill your kingdom purposes, Lord. That's what we're asking for. All the resources necessary to carry out your will. We call for these. We ask for these. By faith, we receive these resources with thankful hearts. Lord, we pray. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Stir in us a vigilance to grow and guard your holiness in us, Lord, we pray. Protect us, Lord. We recognize that we are in a spiritual war zone, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, we resolve to put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, we may be able to stand our ground and after we have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Lord Jesus, we pray all of this, recognizing that yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. And yours is the glory forever and ever. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.